it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have episode 278. And today we're going to talk about the impact of your investments from economic conditions. So Andrew had a great conversation with a listener recently that he's going to talk about. And they talked a little bit about economic conditions and how they could impact your investing. So we thought this would be an interesting conversation to help all of you out there. Yeah, shout out to Max. That was really fun. and. You know, Max talked about, you know, hearing about friends who are his age and maybe some of them are getting laid off or working for companies where a lot of these big corporations are talking about having to cut back on costs. And obviously that can kind of scare you into thinking, hey, where's the economy going if I have friends around me or family who are losing their jobs or the talk around the office is that they're cutting this and they're taking away our nap pods and they're taking away our free catered lunches. Like obviously the outlook for the economy might be less optimistic than it was say a year or two ago. So what does that mean for my investments in the stock market? And that's something that not only do beginner investors deal with that, but I would say all investors deal with that. And so the question's not, are you going to deal with this? Or are you going to have these feelings happen? I feel like the question is, how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to think about it? And that could be a whole episode. So why don't we just do that and yeah. start there? Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to throw out a term and then we'll kind of uh, weigh it out there so everybody understands. The term macro is the term that's often used when people think about economic conditions. And the way I always try to think about it, and this, you know, from an economics perspective, somebody's probably cringing when I say this, but when I think of macro, I think of the overall economy as a whole in large, and whether that means the United States, whether that means global economy, 
it really, for to me, it always insinuates that we're thinking about the overall broad economic conditions, whether things are good or, or whether they're bad, and maybe some you know smaller you know compartments of that. But that's really kind of how I think of the term macro, and it's uh, the reason I want to describe it, define it, is because it's probably going to be a term we'll use throughout this conversation, and I don't want newbies or new investors to go, "What is he talking about?" So maybe to help kind of start the conversation, I guess to when you think of macro, what does that mean to you? Like, how do you define that term? I feel like you defined it well. I did did not cringe at all. It is (laughs) the things that you hear about in the headlines all the time, whether it's unemployment, inflation, economic growth, interest rates, all of these things that actually do play a big part in this economy that we all live in, work in, and have investments in the stock market that are all affected by it. That's all macroeconomic. So I guess the question to you would be, to what degree are you looking at macroeconomic factors when it comes to buying individual stocks and having a portfolio? For me, it's more of, I guess, a brief understanding of what's going on or an overview of everything that's going on. I don't necessarily dive into the nitty gritty of the numbers and the specifics. It's more just having a general pulse on kind of what's going on. Are we going into a recession? Are we in a recession? Are, is everything booming? Just for me, it's kind of having an overview of that kind of idea. I guess that's how I look at it. What about you? Yeah, same. So I guess the next natural question would be, if that's the case and you're trying to buy low, sell high, why not just not invest when we're in a recession and only invest when we are out of a recession? As a beginner, that sounds like the most natural thing to do. It does, but that brings into the whole equation the idea of timing the market and being having the foresight to know exactly when you start and stop these things and being able to define a definitive period of, hey, we're in a recession now. Now we're not in a recession. And I don't have that special ability. And I don't know many people who do, if any. And so it, it kind of comes back to that whole idea of trying to time the market and how that's really not an effective way to invest. And I guess, you know, if you're thinking about this, do you think about timing the market or, you know, what is like if I came to you and said, hey, I'm just going to wait till the, you know, recession is over and I'm going to start investing, what would you tell me? <laughs> I would tell you, stop. Don't do that. <laughs> so I think something that's maybe not clear unless you've been investing for a while is that stock prices move not only on what the businesses are doing, but also on what everybody expects the businesses to do. So if we all kind of know that a stock's going to have lower earnings because there's a recession coming up, then they could perform slightly better than what everybody expected and see their stock price go up. And that's maybe not, that's maybe kind of weird. Like you would say, well, this business shrunk, it got smaller, but their stock price went up even though they just reported that things got smaller. Why is that the case? Well, it's because in a large way, Wall Street and the stock market is driven by people's expectations. And so not only do you have to guess, if you were to hypothetically, let's say, wait until the recession was over to invest your money, or you were going to sell when you think the economy is booming and then wait until the recession's over, then you're going to buy back in when everything's low. 
if you were to hypothetically do that, you would not only have to figure out exactly where those starting and ending points of the recession are, which to your point is never clear unless you're looking at the rear view mirror. Only three, six, 12 months later do we say, oh yeah, that was a recession. So not only do you have to get that right, but then you have to understand what are people expecting, which means what is already priced into the stocks that you're looking at. And then you have to guess if these businesses are going to outperform or underperform their expectations. So good luck with all of that. That's kind of why, I mean, that's a big reason why I think it sounds good in theory to kind of change how you're going to invest based on macroeconomic conditions. But in practice, that's very hard and probably impossible to do. Yeah, I borderline, I think it is impossible to do. I don't know any successful long-term investor that's been able to do that. Of course, there's been people that have gotten things right from time to time, but I would hypothesize that that is far more luck than it is skill. And you know, there's luck involved in investing just like anything else. I guess the thing that I always kind of come back to when I'm thinking about investing is understanding where the country is or where the world is in the economy is important, but it's also more important to really understand where the company is that you're investing in. Let's say you're investing in Berkshire Hathaway, for example, and you see the stock price falling, but then when you look at the actual performance, the financial performance of the business, you see that their revenues are up, their margins are up, their you know, buying back stock, all these things that they've been doing when things were going well, as far as the economy is going, they're still doing the same thing when the economy is not doing as well. Well, that to me, there's a dislocation between the, I guess, data points. And I want the company that's going to do well, regardless of what's going on in the economy. And there, of course, there's going to be downturns. There's going to be times when Berkshire Hathaway financially won't perform as well as it may. But there's also to this idea of when the tide goes out, you can kind of see who's swimming naked, but it also is when low tide drops, it drops everything. And so sometimes when the whole market goes down, even though Berkshire Hathaway, as an example, may be financially performing very well, their stock price will fall, but it's not because of the financial performance of the business. Whereas there may be other points in time where there are economic conditions that do impact the financial performance of Berkshire. And that's something I guess you have to be aware of, but that is more on a case-to-case basis as opposed to having a super focused, I guess, intention of understanding the inner workings of the macroeconomic situation and how that impacts Berkshire. And I guess that's what I you know, try to do. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit, but I think that's you know, just understanding that Sometimes the tide will go in and out and the companies will be affected by that. But the financial performance of the company in the long run is really going to be the thing you want to focus on as opposed to the stock price movements, because those always correlate with the performance of the company, I guess. is That's one of the things that I try to think about. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. 
Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. It's the absolute right mental model to have. And we easily forget how things seemed obvious in hindsight. And that plays a huge role in this whole thinking you can time the market thing too. Because when the market crashed in March 2020, April 2020, it crashed and then it shot right back up and then didn't stop, didn't look back. But if you look back in history, let's say even the last recession we had before 2020, if you look back 2008, 2009, that market actually had a lot of crash, kind of jump recovery where people are thinking, yay, we're back to the bull market. And then, nope, false start, crash. And then you, you had like two or three of these false start recoveries. And it wasn't that long ago where I remember people, it might have been on Twitter or wherever, people putting charts where they're looking at 2020 versus 2008, 2009 and saying, don't believe this recovery. It's going to go, we're going to crash. Mm-hmm. And of course, for 2020, that did not happen. And then now we, here we sit at 2023. And people are making similar claims. So are we going to be like 2008? Or are we going to be like 2020? Are we going to be like 1987? Are we going to be like 2000? I don't know. And that's mm-hmm. the thing is that you can't take what's happened in the past and say, well, this is going to happen for sure. Because sometimes the patterns do follow and sometimes they don't. And so you can't be saying any form of time in the market, whether it's I'm going to wait until things get better to put money in. Or I'm going to sell now or you know, load up now, all these kind of ideas. That's why I, I try to talk about a dollar cost averaging approach over and over and over again. 
because a dollar cost averaging approach basically says I'm going to take the same amount of money and put it into the market every single month. Sometimes I might get more money, you know, get like a cool bonus from work, throw that in there. But there's a minimum amount that you're putting in. So regardless if, if the sky is falling and we all think we're going to recession or things are great and everybody thinks we're in a bubble, you just keep putting money in because at the end of the day, you really don't know what the, the next six months look like. But the compounding effect of putting dollar cost averaging into your investing plan is so powerful. And it takes away that worry of, is this the right time? Is this the right time? Am I doing the right thing right now? The right time is always, mm-hmm. in my opinion. If you have a long-term mindset and, and you're going to be holding for 20 plus years, the right time is always. So just slow and steady, keep putting money in and you don't have to worry about any one deposit, any one investment, any one period of time. And studies have shown over and over and over again that that's how you build wealth sustainably by having this consistency and not narrowing narrowing your focus to some three or six month period. Yeah, exactly. You put that all great. And the whole dollar cost averaging DCA, whichever term you want to use, that's really one of the the superpowers that we have as an individual investors is that we can continually put money to work in the market. And studies have shown time and time again that time in the market is more important than timing the market. And it's, it's the idea of the consistency. And think about 401ks. That's really one of the strengths of the 401k is that it's automatically putting money into the market on a regular, consistent basis over a long period of time. And that will in turn will yield you, you know, huge benefits. And that's really what it comes down to is, you know, understanding the macro and having a, a sense or a pulse of those things is important, but time in the market is far more important than trying to time the market. So I guess let's talk a little bit about Max's, I guess his main question to you and kind of maybe we could talk a little bit about what he was asking you and we can kind of dive into that a little bit. Yeah, Max is kind of talking about are we seeing early signs of a recession when you see layoffs and how does that maybe affect investments? And so, you know, we gave this introduction kind of like prerequisite learning material about how the stock market works and how it kind of works in the short term and the long term. And so the answer to that is like, yes, in general, when you have layoffs, it does slow the economy down because everything in the economy is this huge cycle. So you get like up cycles and down cycles where people get jobs, they get raises, they spend more money. People get jobs, get raises, spend more money. It's like an upward spiral. And then it happens again on the downward spiral. People lose jobs, they spend less money, businesses get less money. People lose jobs, spend less money, businesses get less money. So you do have that as a big picture kind of phenomenon. I guess the problem is, is the economy is so big and there's so many moving pieces that if there were layoffs, say some are concentrated like in the tech world, for example, let's say hypothetically a lot of tech businesses just thought everything was going to go to the moon. And so they hired anybody that they could find and paid them whatever they wanted and took on any project that sounded like it had any sort of potential and just spend, spend, spend with no consequences. And then let's say now they have to pull that back. So you have a big glut in technology as an example. Will that ripple to the rest of the economy? It might or it might not. And that's because we've seen times where struggles in one area have affected the entire economy. 
like the banking issue, the banking and real estate issue in 2008, 2009 mm-hmm. had major ripples throughout the entire economy. I mean, people were over leveraged. The banks had to really slow down lending, all of this stuff. You could talk about the macroeconomic situation there until you're blue in the face, the Fed, blah, 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 blah. But if you looked at something like 2015, 2016, so if you fast forward a little bit to 2015, 2016, if you weren't in the industrial <laughs> sector, you might not have known that this even happened, but they had a pretty big slowdown in the industrial sector. A lot of different industrial tied companies had a big slowdown and that had ripple effects throughout their value chain. But the rest of the economy in general was pretty fine. And certainly the tech stocks just flew through that period, no problem. So that was a period of weakness where there were layoffs in that area of the economy, which didn't necessarily ripple through the entire global economic environment. So I understand the logic of feeling scared that there could be a recession. And I'm not trying to say that there won't be, because I see all of the scary data points too. All I'm saying is that Yes, it could be a signal of a recession as you perceive a recession, but it also could not be. And so I'm not putting my financial future on a bet whether it is or it's not. And that's why you just have to, you can think about it and it's good to kind of like Dave was saying, have a basic awareness, but you don't make big decisions based on that information because it's not necessarily even the best information or the best thing to do. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It's great to have an understanding of, of the overall economy and the overall sense and pulse of what's going on in the world. But it also comes down to how well you understand the businesses that you're investing in. If you're a stock picker, then our job as a stock picker is to understand how Berkshire Hathaway works, how understand how Google works and to understand how Visa works. And they don't necessarily all correlate and overlap. And so things that may be going poorly at Google won't necessarily affect Visa's financial performance, for example. And likewise with Berkshire Hathaway, they kind of all are separate buckets in a way. They all operate in the United States economy for example. And so that does have an impact on them if the market, if the economy slips into a recession, but each may have a varying degree of impact. Some, it may impact more than others. And that kind of comes back to understanding the businesses that you're investing in. And I want to throw this idea of like a circle of competence. And that's really where it comes down to really understanding the businesses that you are investing in in having an understanding of what those layoffs mean for that particular company, it will filter into the overall view of what happens with the economy. For example, if you are in California and Silicon Valley is weighing off a lot of their employees, that's obviously going to have a huge impact on the economy of California. And it may spill into other states. It may not. And it also may or may not filter into the general economy. You don't know that, but it comes back to really understanding Facebook and Google and Apple and Microsoft and their businesses and how those layoffs are impacting that particular business. Aside from the horror and the the tragedy of all those people being laid off, which is an awful thing, 
But if you think about, if you focus then on the business part of it, weighing off 11,000 people from Meta, you know, the stock market is taking that, you know, going back to the expectations investing, the stock market is actually taking that as a favorable sign because it means that the company in theory should be more profitable because they have less people that they're paying. And that's a big expense for the business. Again, not to minimize the human impact of the people being laid off because, you know, it is horrible. I don't wish that on people. But, you know, when you're talking about an individual company, that's what you have to think about is kind of move beyond the tragedy part of it and think about the actual financial position. And the stock market, if you look at Meta's performance over the last six, eight months, it was a dog. And now it's one of the leading, you know, stock returns of this year because the market expects Meta to be more profitable because they've been weighing off more people. Mark Zuckerberg calls it the year of efficiency, beginning of the year, you know, interviews. And so that's really where the circle of competence comes into play because Berkshire is not, for example, is not weighing off 11,000 people and Visa is not weighing off 11,000 people. I know nothing about Meta. I don't know very little about some of these other tech companies. And so I would not be a good person to ask my opinion, because that kind of falls a little bit out of my circle of confidence. If you ask me about Visa, I can tell you. If you ask me about Berkshire Hathaway, I can tell you. If you ask me about Bank of America or JP Morgan, I can tell you. However, <laughs> but it all comes back to you know having a circle of confidence. And I think that's where having the confidence who say, yeah, I understand Visa enough to know that if they lay off 11,000 people, how's that going to affect the business? It could be detrimental. You don't know. But if you do know, that, that gives you a confidence to be able to go, okay, you know, this is a big deal or this is not a big deal or this is going to help the business or it's going to hurt the business. But that's where understanding the business and having a circle of competence kind of comes into play. So I guess I just talked a lot about circle of competence. I want to give you your say because I'm sure you got lots of good things to divulge as well. I mean, I feel like you covered it pretty well. Circle of competence is what it comes down to knowing what you own. Mm-hmm. For me, if, if I looked at a company where I'm used to having really stable profits, somebody like Microsoft, if I were to see that they lost 80, 90% of their profits in one year, that would really concern me. But if I look at somebody who's super cyclical, like a home builder or a, a lumber distributor, and they lose 80% of their profits, that's kind of par for the course. That's just the way that these businesses operate. So to Dave's point, if you have a circle of competence, if you understand how the businesses that you own operate, then you can understand what a data point actually means. because one data point for one company might be a very different meaning than the same data point for a different company. And same with the layoffs. Layoffs for a company where the business is, you know, revenues are down, 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 and and things are shrinking, and it's like we have something that looks like it's dying because there's just no demand for what they sell. Yeah, that's another bad sign to add to, add to the cart. But a business that's growing and, and has a lot of layoffs but maybe it was because they were a little overambitious a time or two ago. Was that going to hurt in the short term? Sure. But does it change the long-term outlook of the business? That's for you to decide as an investor. So that's where these data points could sound scary. And the media does a great job of making it sound as scary as they can. <laughs> that's what they're paid for. Right. Uh, but that's where, as an investor, you can find confidence in knowing what you own and then interpreting it for yourself rather than relying on what somebody at BuzzFeed said. Yeah, exactly. So, so we've talked about like the definition of these ideas, maybe some of the ways that you could avoid it. And 
the analysis of the business can help you overcome some of the fear and trepidation that could occur because of those headlines. So how do you deal with this whole idea of macro and economic conditions and maybe how that affects your investing? Yeah, it's a really great question. I wouldn't say there's a one-size-fits-all answer for me personally. I kind of just look at trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together and then as you learn about more industries and companies, you start to see similarities, but no single companies can be the exact same. So I'll give you an example like with home building. Like I said, it's a very boom and bust industry. Things go up and down a lot, and it's very characteristic for them to get really excited and then overbuild and then really pessimistic and underbuild. So you get these just big natural cycles, and that's the way the industry goes. For me, I wanted to look back as much history as I could to see, are there any long-term trends that I can hang my hat on? And for home building, it was for me, it was pretty simple. The price of new home construction rises pretty near the growth of the economy. And it makes sense. As the economy grows, people get richer. They can spend more on homes. Homes are a natural necessity. So for me, holding something like a home builder, I know it's going to be a really bumpy ride. But over the long term, I'm expecting them to keep up with the economy. And so that gives me the confidence to invest when I think the price is good and then hang on for as long as I want. You can take another much more stable industry like insurance, something that doesn't have these huge boom and busts normally, and something like a health insurance company. And you can kind of look and see that, you know what, they might not have these years where they're tripling their revenue or something. But you get kind of a slow and steady people have to pay their health insurance premiums year after year after year. And so in that case, you can just look at something really simple and you say, well, if I'm looking for something steady right now, maybe I add to a company like this. Like If you feel like things are really expensive around you, you can find something that's a lot more steady, slow grower, and it's probably trading at a decent price and then buy there. So that's where I think knowing kind of the general... Like that combination of circle and competence and just having a general insight into where the economy is. If I feel like the economy is like pretty hot, then I tend to look for something that's maybe a little more stable. But it's not a hard and fast rule, but you're just kind of like you're thinking of where the market's expecting things, where prices are in the market, and then where the economy is. And you can make decisions on what you want to focus on. And that I think that can be helpful sometimes. But I think knowing the fundamental characteristics of what you're looking at, that's what I try to do. And like I said, I do it differently with every business. And that gives me confidence when I'm buying to know, hey, I'm buying at a pretty good time. And hey, I know what I'm buying for. It's always to try to hold for the long term. So that part's easy. Right. It is. That's the easiest part. (laughs) But the, you know, I try to approach it roughly the same way. I think about, I try to think about the overall economic situation that we're in and think about the interest rates and kind of how those impact the values of the companies that I'm trying to buy. And then it's more focusing on the particular industries and trying to stay within my circle of competence and try to stay within those industries that I feel like I understand and can project how those will do in the future. And understanding that it's in reality just a guess because there's nobody that knows what, you know, I could say that the financial industry will do this over the next 10 years, 
And I could be completely wrong, and but I could also be completely right. So, but it all comes down to kind of trying to understand each individual company and how they fit within their particular sector. Because, like Andrew was saying, they some of these will go in and out of favor. Some will get really get slammed by something that could not impact anything else. And so it's, but then that really comes down to really understanding that industry and that business. Because even if that industry or business get slammed by something in particular. If you have an understanding of the business and there's a downturn in that sector for whatever reason, you might be able to project or see the end of that downturn and it can help you stick out you know, the, the downturn in that particular sector. It, but it also could provide you opportunities to buy great companies that are still performing well, but everything else is getting punished because that is doing poorly. It, it's kind of related to, think about the Recently, there's been kind of a, I guess, an underhanded joke in the advertising businesses. Snapchat is the company that always reports before Google and Microsoft and Netflix and Trade Desk and, you know, all these face meta, all these companies that are built on a lot of advertising. And it's a little comical because Snapchat doesn't do well on their earnings, for example. The market punishes them, but then they also punish Google. When Google isn't going to report their earnings for another two weeks has zero relationship to how Google is performing their business, but the market is punishing them just because they're in the same overall sector, at least for a short term. And then they always bounce back. But it's it's a little amusing to watch sometimes kind of when you're removing yourself to see some of those things and how they impact things. But if you didn't, if you're trying to invest in Google, for example, and you see that out of nowhere, the company is, their prices drop 10, 12, 15%, and there's no news regarding that, it could be a great opportunity to buy something, but it could also be something bigger if you didn't understand the business and what's really going on with the business. And that's where kind of understanding all this and having a circle of competence can help you really kind of move past some of the, like Andrew was saying, the fears of what the media is going to tell you. Because if something happens in regards to that, you know they're going to punish the company in the news and the market will sometimes move on that news even though it has nothing to do with the actual financial performance of the business. And so those are all things that, you know, I think when I think about it, that's how I kind of, it helps me move past some of the fear that you may see in the news. Although I, I try really, really hard to avoid the financial news. Sometimes it's impossible to miss something, but I try hard to stay away from it just because I know that that's something that they're trying to do. And it, it can be scary. It could certainly be scary. And if you're a new investor or newer to this whole game and you see those headlines or you hear people talking about this, that, or the other thing, it could be scary and I get it. But that's where kind of really understanding what it is you're buying and what you're looking at will really help alleviate some of those fears because you won't get caught off guard as much. Yeah, th- those are all excellent points. Maybe before we wrap up, I was curious, can you give an example of seeing that light at the end of the tunnel? where you might have a position that everybody seems to be writing about this industry is, looks terrible, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, you have a better insight and it helps you to hold on to the stock. Do you have an example of something like that? I think there's a couple. One that kind of, I guess, kind of springs to mind a little bit is Visa. During the aftermath of the, the 2020 crash, Visa fell 40-50% during that month and a half time period and it recovered but it took a long time compared to other companies 
And a lot of it was because a big portion of their revenue comes from international transactions. So if I go to Paris and I buy a whole bunch of stuff and my bank is in New York City, then Visa makes a little more money from that transaction than if I was in New York City buying the same thing. So, And when the pandemic is going on, travel was almost non-existent. But if you looked at the business and everything else that they were doing, you know, you could see that debit card transactions were growing through the pandemic. You could see that more people were using plastic than cash, partly because everybody was at home. And so you could see some of these trends starting to happen, even though that wasn't filtering back into the stock price. It took a little while for the stock price to kind of start to recover from the big drop. And whereas if you looked at Google, for example, it almost literally straight up right after the pandemic and Amazon too, you know, the price of Amazon fell a bunch and then it rebounded very quickly, but Visa did not. And, but because I understand, understood the nature of the business and understood how they make money and how understood how the cards get used and those kinds of things, it helped me see the light at the end of the tunnel. I, I started seeing a rebound in international transactions way before the market was talking about it and way before the stock price reflected that. And that was really a big income driver for the company. And so that helped me hold on and even buy more of Visa at that time because I knew it was going to be a better investment and I was getting a good I was getting a good sale on it at the time. And it wasn't something that a lot of people were really necessarily talking about. It wasn't one of the wasn't one of the meme stocks. It wasn't one of the big huge growth stocks. It, it was overlooked a little bit by the overall market and this, you know, social media sentiment wasn't super bullish on the company at the time either. So I think I even remember somebody saying at that kind of the height of the dot, uh, not dot com, but the height of the bubble, 2021, maybe early 2022, that Visa and MasterCard were over the hill and they were dead. And they, people were predicting that their demise. And uh, that has obviously not come to pass, but that was kind of the overall sentiment for Visa at the time. So that's what helped me overcome that whole idea. What about you? I'm hoping that, I think that's a great example. So maybe you can help somebody who struggles with that. How did you keep that? mindset in spite of what everybody else could have been saying what's the process because what's the process i think that's Uh, really helpful yeah i think well for me the process was number one understanding the business and really understanding what drove the profit for the resident drove the growth for the business prior to the pandemic and seeing the rebound happen as it's happening because i was reading i was reading their transcript calls i was looking at their financials and so and i was reading the news about them and also reading the news about other financial companies fintechs like them mastercard for example uh, american express paypal uh, ajin all these companies were all reporting roughly the same kinds of they were seeing the same rebounds it wasn't necessarily being reflected in the stock prices but they were seeing the same economic recovery. And then just kind of following the news enough to understand that these companies, these countries were going through rebounds. And, you know, as the whole pandemic was changing and and started to fade away, you started seeing recoveries faster in other parts of the world than others. And all those things kind of coalesced and gave me confidence that what I was seeing happening with Visa was the real deal and it was going to continue to recover and go back to air quote normal. That was it for me. And number two, I tend to be very patient when it comes to stocks, maybe not other things, but with stocks I am. And 
some of it is probably just bullheaded stubbornness <laughs> that I wasn't going to sell because I, I knew what a great company Visa was. And I just, I had the confidence that they were a great company. They were doing what they needed to do. And it was going to, in the long run, they were, they were going to get back to where they needed to be. So it's just, you know, just understanding the economics of the business and how they do what they do. I love that. It's easy to get kind of like Brainiac, like I was writing yesterday. It's easy to get Brainiac with stocks, but mm-hmm. sometimes you just need to be a stubborn bull. Yeah. <laughs> and that can do a lot of things for your wealth. Mm-hmm. So I love that. All right. Well, w- thank you. With that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for today. Thanks to Max for reaching out to Andrew and asking this great question that gave us a lot of great things to talk about. And I think it could be very helpful for for other investors, particularly new investors, as they come into the market, because it can be a scary, scary thing to see the news and wonder how to react to some of those ideas. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show for this week. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app if you enjoyed our little podcast. If you would kindly consider giving us a review, it would greatly help the show. And don't forget to browse the incredible materials that we put together for you at einvestingforbeginners.com. Lastly, continue growing your knowledge as an Investing for Beginners insider with insights and educational tips delivered right to your inbox for free. Sign up for our emails today. So with that, I'll go ahead and wrap us up. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.